Today's Bible reading is from Deuteronomy chapter 30, starting verse 11, and going through until the end of the chapter. Now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven, so you have to ask, who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us, so we may obey it? Nor is it beyond the sea, so that you have to ask, who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it? No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands, decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life, so that you and your children may live, and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Good morning, everybody, and um, thank you for uh, the weekend which I have shared with you, which has been absolutely wonderful for me. I've loved um, conversations with you, and uh, many of you have fed me as you have uh, talked about the Lord's goodness, and it's been a blessing, a great time for me. And it's always lovely to hear the people get up and talk about the uh, talks that have been given, because often they explain what I've said, which is a big help to me, because then I know what I said. <laughs> I often put it better than I did, so I learn a great deal by listening to that as well. Um, we have prayed for our time, and uh, I just want to say two quick or three quick things. If you do want to study the book of Deuteronomy in a little bit of depth, I do recommend the commentary by Christopher Wright, uh, W-R-I-G-H-T, Christopher Wright. His commentary on Deuteronomy is, is heartwarming and stimulating and wonderful. Uh, second thing is, um, if you haven't read the book by Stephen McAlpine called Being the Bad Guys, I recommend it to you. Um, Stephen McAlpine is a fine Christian writer in Perth and he's written a book explaining that 50 years ago we were seen as re relatively good people and then about 20 years ago we were seen as relatively boring people and now we're seen as relatively unwanted people. And so we have to face the fact that the church, even in the cool west, is um, looked on as a, as a negative thing in many ways. And how do we live in the light of that? So he's not asking us to bunker down or hide or apologize, but rather to face reality and live Christianly. So I recommend that to you as well. And the third quick thing is that um, when we do have the Q&A after this, I do urge you to think of some questions because a Q&A dies a terrible death if there is a silence, but it rises wonderfully if you've got some quick-fire questions, and I'll try and give some quick-fire answers. 
So with all of that behind us, let's uh, think about our fourth talk in the book of Deuteronomy. We've seen the recap on the first night, which is chapters 1 to 4. We've seen the covenant blessings belonging to God, privilege, responsibility in chapters 5 to 11. And uh, last night we saw, or yesterday afternoon, we saw that some of the commandments unpacked and the details of living for Him. So we looked at four chapters in the first talk, seven chapters in the second talk, 15 chapters in the third talk, and today we come to just eight chapters in the fourth talk, and it's Deuteronomy 27 to 34, and I've called this Persuading the Listener, because a decision has to be made by the people of Israel as they go into the Promised Land, whether they're going to be God-listening people or God-ignoring people. And when he says you'll perish from the land, we know as well as anybody that when they get into the land and persistently disobey, eventually they get removed from the land. So it's a serious and solemn thing. And it's not enough just for the Israelites to know stuff. They've got to actually put into practice what they know. You remember the story of the four men in the plane? Do you remember this old story? You've got a pilot, you've got a bishop, you've got a student and a brilliant professor, and they're travelling along in a small plane, and the engines fail, and the pilot radios back and says, I'm sorry to tell you that the engines have failed, and I'm even more sorry to tell you we only have three parachutes, but since I own the plane and I have a small family, I'll be taking one, and out he goes. The brilliant professor then stands up and says, I'm so intelligent and wonderful, we owe it to the country to keep me alive. And so he says, I'm taking one as well, and he jumps out. And the old bishop then stands up and says to the student, young man, I'd be very happy for you to take the last parachute. I'm an old man, I'm ready to meet my maker. And the student says, well, sir, it won't be necessary, there are still two parachutes. And the bishop says, how could that be possible? There were only three parachutes. And the student says, I know that the brilliant professor has just jumped out with my rucksack. <laughs> and we live in a world where lots of people feel very secure, but they're wrapped in a rucksack. And um, it's just a matter of time before the reality is going to hit. But the amazing thing is that there are many of us sitting in this room who are wrapped in Christ, the parachute. And we are safe, but we can still feel unsafe. So the question is not really how do you feel, the real question is, have you heard the grace of God to you through Christ? Have you put your faith in him, in which case you are wrapped in a parachute? And you will arrive safely. But it's not enough, of course, to be intelligent and sincere. You've really got to be wrapped in a parachute. You've really got to belong to Christ. So uh, Moses is looking for a decision from the people of Israel because they know stuff, but he wants to know whether they've responded uh, the big question we have to ask is, and I know some of you have got your thinking caps on, which is great. I can see it in your face that you're thinking. I can see the two of you. You're great. <laughs> that was a small joke. And um, we've got to ask the question, is Moses asking the people of Israel to respond to God by becoming believers? In other words, are they, is he asking them to begin or is he asking them to rededicate? And I think the answer is yes. He's asking some of them to begin. Put your faith in God. And he's asking some of them to rededicate because you've been on a drift. 
and you've been meandering, and it's time for you to come back and surrender. He wants the whole group to go into the promised land, surrendered to God, whether it's for the first time or for the 50th time. He wants them to go in surrendered to God. And remember that Moses is going to leave them. And so he's a shepherd, and he wants them to go in and be safe. Uh, when I finished at North Sydney after 30 years, I preached on this passage from Deuteronomy as my final sermon because it seemed to me to be the thing that we should say to the people about um, going forward with God himself. So these uh, final chapters are very rich and very masterful, very wonderful, and it's Moses at his evangelistic best. I mean, we've heard the great evangelists occasionally and Moses was a master. So in chapter 27, which is not on your outline on page 14, I'll just tell you quickly that there are two instructions in chapter 27. Uh, listen carefully to this. Moses says, I want you to go in, when you cross the river, I want you to set up a sign of your salvation. He says in chapter 27 verse 2, when you cross the Jordan, and remember that's going to be a miracle, <clears throat> the Jordan River was not a puddle. Getting a million people across the Jordan was going to be a miracle. And he says that when you cross the river, I want you to set up some stones and paint them probably white, and I want you to write the law, possibly the Ten Commandments, on the, on the stones. And he says, I don't want you to do any fancy work on the stones. These are just going to be stones from the, the bed of the river, and they will be a continual reminder to you that this crossing into the land was a miracle. You couldn't have got in if God had not stopped the river. But it will also be a reminder to you of who you're going to serve. So there would be this beautiful monument on the side of the river. And then he says, I want you also to, and we've heard this before, I want you to notice there are two mountains as you go in, almost like portals. And one of them was called Gerizim, and it was a fertile mountain. And one was called Ebal, it was a barren mountain. And I want some representatives of the tribes to stand on Gerizim and call out the blessings. And I want some of the tribes to stand on Ebal and call out the blessings. This is a reminder to you that you're making a decision. Now, when we read in this chapter uh, some of the curses, they're very general curses. They say things like, if you do this, you'll be cursed. We don't really know what the curse means. It, it's just basically, you know, if you are unfaithful to your spouse, you'll be cursed. But it's general. When we get to chapter eight, 28, the curses are much more specific. They're things like, if you're unfaithful, your crops will fail. Your herds will not breed. You'll lose your battles. <clears throat> There'll be no rain that will fall. Very specific curses. The, <clears throat> the plan of God in the Old Testament was much more in your face, as you know. So what was the sign that God was favouring you? Outward blessings. Plenty. Crops. Herds. Kids. Plenty. When you get to the New Testament, the blessings of God are much more inward and eternal. They're not just outward and temporal, they're inward and eternal. Is there any relevance of this for us today? 
In other words, if there is a terrible drought in Australia, is this, is this a sign of God's displeasure? If there's a terrible earthquake, and I don't know how many of you are aware, but there has been a terrible earthquake in Morocco over this weekend, uh, which occurred on Friday, and they said this morning that approximately 1,300 people have been killed. Is this a proof of God's judgment on Morocco? Here are some quick thoughts. We must remember that what we're talking about with the curses and the blessings is very much to Israel about the promised land. It's a unique word to a unique people in a unique place. We must also remember that all pleasure and all pain teaches us something about God. So when we experience pleasure, we're meant to trace it back to God and say, this is what God is like. He's a God of great goodness. When we experience pain, it's not that we say God has delighted in this, but he's decreed it. And we trace it back and we say, this is to remind us that uh, life is serious and that God is not a God to be played with. Um, God is a God to be trusted at this particular point. So whether we're in pleasure or pain, we're meant to, with biblical glasses, think about God himself, uh, who is behind everything, whether it's his decree or his delight. And then, of course, remember Jesus would not discuss the subject of whether a, a tower falling over was somebody's fault. He wouldn't enter into that discussion, Luke 13. He simply said, if you hear of a tragedy like an earthquake in Morocco, this is a message to you to repent because life is short and you're a mortal person and you've got to take God seriously. But if we are considering the question of whether we disobey as Christians, could we be driven away and cursed, we at that point have to say, no, in the providence and greatness of God, Jesus has borne the curse for us at the cross. He has taken on the curses that we deserve in order to give to us the blessings that he deserves. And so um, he may teach us through suffering and difficulty and drought and earthquake, he may teach people to return to him. I was reminding um, Michelle this morning of that illustration of C.S. Lewis, where C.S. Lewis says that when God comes to the average person in the world, he sort of knocks at their door. And the average person, you know this perfectly well, says, I'm not interested. You know, wait until I'm really old and come back. Wait until I'm in trouble come back, you know, oh God, you're an ambulance driver. When I get into trouble, I'll call you. And when I'm out of trouble, push off. That's the way the world, that's the way we think in our hearts, isn't it? But um, C.S. Lewis says, you know, what's God going to do if the average person says to him, I'm not interested? Well, he's not going to walk away because God is interested in people. And he's not going to knock at the door again because the door is not working. So C.S. Lewis says he'll take out the back wall. He'll collapse the central staircase. Not because he's not interested in you. He is interested in you. But you're not listening the easy way. So he's going to come to you the hard way. And he's going to send C.S. Lewis to turn your house into a palace. So this is, I think, a biblical way of thinking about this kind of testing or suffering that comes. That's Deuteronomy chapter 27. Now chapter 28 I've called pros and cons. And the blessings which come in chapter 28, God's promise of blessings, are beautiful, comprehensive and wonderful. You can read chapter 28 of Deuteronomy 1 to 14, and you can see there God's delight to bless his people. 
And uh, there's 14 verses of blessings. And uh, of course, in the New Testament, it would be the same God calling us to walk with him and to experience his joy. But in chapter 28, verses 15 to 68, there are relentless curses. And they are absolutely devastating. And they reveal that God is completely in charge of everything. And there's 54 verses of curses. Okay, 14 of blessings, 54 of curses. And again, the New Testament will warn us not to turn away from the living God. You know as well as I do that if uh, somebody comes to talk to you over coffee and they're in great distress and they say to you, I've committed a sin and I think I've lost my salvation, pastorally, you'll take them to John 10. You'll say, no, no one shall pluck you out of his hand. God is a merciful God. But if somebody comes to you and they're really reckless and stupid and they say, listen, I'm a Christian, but I rob banks every evening, you'll take them to a more of a warning message, like John 15. You know, the fruitless branch will be cut off. Because the Bible, you see, is too big to just give us one bumper sticker on how to behave. It has to give us promises and warnings. We need the promises or we'll despair. We need the warnings or we'll be stupid. God is a, a very wise pastor. So some of these curses in uh, Deuteronomy 28 are very interesting. Uh, and they've got to do with, uh, some of them have got to do with anxiety. That uh, if you turn away from the living God, Deuteronomy 28, you'll become so anxious. You'll wake up in the morning anxious. You'll go to bed at night anxious. You'll hear a leaf <laughs> quivering in the distance and you'll take fright. And anxiety is such a big issue in the West today. Such a big issue. And I think um, what we have to recognise is that when the Western world does turn away from Christ and walk away from the light and goes further and further into the dark, there is a lot of anxiety and we Christians can absorb it. But it doesn't mean we're unsafe. It doesn't mean we're not in the parachute. We're still in the parachute. In chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, Moses says, um, if you continue to be disobedient, you'll end up in the dark. He says you'll end up with locusts. You'll end up with plagues. You'll end up with, can you imagine what's he about to say? You'll end up with Egypt. In other words, you'll go backwards. You'll go backwards. Now, my friends, why would the curses outnumber the blessings in Deuteronomy 28? Do you think God is more interested in cursing? than he is in blessing? Do you think he's got more imagination to think up curses than he has to think up blessings? No, both of them come from a very loving God. Imagine a mother saying goodbye to her child at the school gates and uh, she sort of kneels down in front of this little boy or little girl and says, now listen, at three o'clock, you wait here at the gate and I'll be here. That's the blessing. And then she says to the child, don't walk away. Don't get a lift with somebody else. Don't get a lift with a stranger. Don't call a cab. Don't try and walk home. Those are the curses. Those are the warnings. But they, they all come from a mum who loves her child. The fact that she has a longer list of cautions than she has of instructions doesn't mean that she's not loving the child. And when God gives us a long list of warnings, it comes from his heart. It comes from his love for us. Chapters 29 to 30. 
what I've called warning and wooing. These are wonderful chapters and they're summarized by the verse which Mark read for us a minute ago, chapter 30, verse 19, choose life. You remember Joshua later said, choose this day whom you'll serve. And Elijah said, choose whom you'll serve. And Jesus said, choose the narrow road and not the broad road, make a decision. That's running through the Bible. In chapter 29, we're given two reasons why you should choose God. Chapter 29, verse 20, so you don't decline and die. Chapter 29, verse 25, so you don't become a byword among the nations who will look and say, why do the people of Israel disappear? Oh, don't you know they disobeyed their God and he deserted them. And in chapter 30, we're given two positive reasons why we should choose God. Chapter 30, verse 9, because God will use you greatly in the land. And chapter 30, verse 19, he will strengthen you in every way. But he says to them, if you um, turn your back on me, things will really go bad for you. In chapter 29, verse 2, he says to the people, you know, you saw the exodus events, you saw the coming out of Egypt, and you saw the crossing of the Red Sea. Verse 4, but you don't get it. You saw it, but you don't get it. You heard it, but you don't get it. Isn't that true in congregations? Is that possible in this very room? that we're singing stuff and saying stuff and reading stuff and that just there's some people in the room here who just don't get it. Last week I was preaching to my congregation in the eastern suburbs of Sydney and I said, as I got to the end, I said, um, I wonder if some of you know what it's like to walk down the street and see a blind man and you can tell that he is a blind man. You don't need a great deal of brains to work out he's a blind man. And I said, um, I'm not the judge of the universe, and I don't have x-ray vision, but it seems to me as your pastor that I can see that a good number of you, and in the back of my head I'm thinking 25 out of 75, it's a little church. It's probably about 25 who are completely in the dark, they're blind. They don't understand the gospel, they don't properly believe in Christ, they're spiritually blind. And I said to them, I can see that many of you are blind, spiritually blind, that you are tentative, you don't have the hope, you don't know where you stand, you're not sure. And the only advice I can give you, I said, is that you seek him with all your heart and make this your priority, because if you seek him, you'll find him. Is that a fair thing to say to the congregation? I hope they heard it coming from a pastoral heart form, because it just uh, astounds me that after speaking to them for three years, a third of the congregation where I work are pretty sure that in the dark, with no hope and no future. Jesus said, you remember in John 6 to the crowds, you ate the bread, but you don't get the bread. You ate the tip-top loaves, the baker's delight, but you don't get that I'm the bread of life. You ate, but you don't get it. Moses is saying that to the people. And he says at the end of Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, yes, there are some secret things that you don't get. That's okay. But what are you doing with the revealed things? The secret things belong to the Lord. Yes, there are things you don't understand. But what are you doing with the revealed things? I think this is a brilliant, brilliant verse. If you have not learned Deuteronomy 29, 29 off by heart, 
I recommend you learn it off by heart because there'll be certain times where you'll be dealing with somebody who's going through very deep water and they'll be looking to you to say, would you please explain to me why this is all happening to me? And you'll want to say in the words of Deuteronomy 29, you know, this is a secret thing. I don't get it. But it doesn't cancel what I do know. That Christ has come, that Christ has died, that Christ has risen. And this is also a great evangelistic verse, because I think we ought to be able to say to sometimes to our friends, listen, I know you have got lots of questions about the Christian faith, and I know you've got lots of things that you know, but I'm wondering what you're doing with all the stuff we've been told. Secret things, yes, but revealed things. What are you doing with the revealed things? If I'm talking with a Muslim, I don't mind saying to the Muslim, I've read through the Quran, I've decided as best I can the Quran is wrong. My question is, have you read through the New Testament? You can't just focus on one portion of the world. You've got to have a brain that will span everything that's available. That's what Moses is saying. And then in chapter 30, with great comfort, he says, when you do get scattered, and he knows they will be scattered, and you return to, return to me, you'll find great mercy. Because he says, you don't need to ascend up into heaven to find the word of God. You don't need some celestial ladder to go up to heaven to get the message, to get the truth. No, 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 it's come down to you. You don't need to cross the seas to go and find out the word of God. No, 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 the word of God has come across to you. And when we think of Jesus, of course, he wonderfully descended with the word of God and he crossed over to us with the word of God. And this uh, passage is taken up in Romans chapter 10 where Paul says you don't need to climb up into heaven to find out the good news. You don't need to go on some international pilgrimage to find the good news. No, 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 Christ has come to you. The word is right next to you. All you need to do is receive it. Now, the next two chapters, 31 32, stay with me, everybody. We're nearly finished. I'm looking at my notes and I'm on my last page, so don't despair. Don't despair. Deuteronomy 31 32, which I've called Death and Judgment. Moses hands over to Joshua calls on him to be courageous, says the law is to be read to the people every seven years. And he then teaches Joshua in chapter 32 that he is to write a song. And the song is to be a song of lament. Uh, I had a godson who died a couple of years ago um, in his 20s, and he suffered for 12 years with the worst possible leukaemia. And he had two bone marrow transplants. And um, he got graft-versus-host disease, whereby his body attacked the bone marrow that was keeping the leukemia at bay. And the symptoms were absolutely horrendous. You know, he lost his hair. His, uh, he, lost, he, he would have 30 or 40 ulcers in his mouth all the time. His whole skin was peeling and red and bleeding uh, all over him. And he just became a, a walking freak, having been the captain of his school and the captain of rugby and the captain of swimming and athletics and a fine Christian boy. He just died in front of us for 12 years. It was absolutely, it was very tough going for the church. And he used to say that he found it very difficult to come to, come to church because he said the songs are just too jolly. He said, I just want a song that, that grapples with what I'm going through. And it's worth remembering, isn't it, that uh, we do need to write songs of lament every now and again, songs of deep water, not just songs of lofty, everything is great. And Moses asks Joshua to write a song of lament, 
a song which will cause the people of Israel to reflect on the gravity of life. And so in chapter 32, there is a long song, and I've uh, summarized it into six R's, words beginning with the letter R. Uh, the first bit is, remember your sin and remember his mercy. The second is, your rebellion has been your pattern of life. Then he says, uh, the rescue of God has been a work of grace. Um, rejecting him is a destructive pattern. Repenting is the way back and the way of life. And rejoicing is what God is looking for. So there's a, a, a very beautiful long song in Deuteronomy 32. And just for your interest, if you're a historian, in chapter 32, verse 35, there's the verse that says, Their foot shall slide in due time. Their foot shall slide in due time. Is there anybody who knows anything about that verse? It's the verse that was preached on by Jonathan Edwards when the revival began in America. And uh, he preached a sermon, a famous sermon, called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, on this verse. Their foot shall slide in due time. A solemn and serious sermon, which God greatly used. Now the last chapters and the last two minutes this morning, Deuteronomy 33 to 34, this is what I've called Great Hope. You remember how Jacob had blessed his 12 sons as he was dying? And now Moses blesses the 12 tribes as he gets ready to leave. He has a specific word for each of the tribes, and then he has a general word for the whole of the tribes. And I'm wondering if somebody would read out for us chapter 33, 26 to 29, just four verses in a loud voice as we come to the end. Chapter 33, 26 to 29. Somebody read that out for us in a loud voice. Please, thank you. Loud voice. There is no one like the God of Jeshurun, who rides across the heavens to help you and on the clouds in his majesty. The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms, who will drive out your enemies before you, saying, destroy them. So Israel will live in safety. Jacob will dwell secure in a land of grain and wine, where the heavens drop dew. Blessed are you, Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. He is your shield and helper and your glorious sword. Your enemies will cower before you and you will tread on their heights. Thank you very much. Isn't that a wonderful thing that Moses says as he finishes with the people? I mean, he could have said something really grumpy like, Israel, you have been an absolute pain in the neck. <laughs> it has been absolute terror to, to lead you and pastor you. I am completely fed up. Go in, be idiots, I don't care. That could be his final message. But he doesn't. He says, there's nobody like you. There's nobody like your God. He's above you. He's around you. He's beneath you. He's ahead of you. It's an absolutely wonderful message to the people. And um, those verses that God is around us, and he is above us, and he is underneath us, and he goes ahead of us, are really wonderful verses. This is how I finished at North Sydney. I said to the people at uh, St. Thomas's North Sydney, you need to remember your God. You need to remember that he's above everything. He is completely sovereign. There's nothing outside his control. He is around you like a refuge, and he's ahead of you like a fighter, and he's underneath you like the everlasting arms. So you cannot sink too low. You see, when God is underneath you with everlasting arms, it doesn't matter how sad you get, you cannot go beneath his arms. 
It doesn't matter how much you're discredited. You cannot go beneath his arms. It doesn't matter how much you suffer. You cannot go beneath his arms. And it doesn't matter if you die. You cannot go beneath his arms. They're underneath. They're beneath. It's absolutely beautiful picture. And all of this language of him above and around and underneath and ahead is, is kind of like a preview of being in Christ. That when we put our faith in Christ, we are in Christ. He is our refuge. He's above us. He's ahead of us. He's underneath us. So Spurgeon, the great Spurgeon, says in his sermon on these verses, and I'll finish with this quote, If you had 50 kingdoms on your mind or carried the politics of a hundred nations or the cares of a thousand worlds, you can trust everything to the wonderful counsellor. So lean hard, brothers and sisters, because underneath are the everlasting arms. Heavenly Father, we thank you for showing yourself to be who you are, a very great and gracious God. We thank you for this wonderful book which we have just skimmed across and all the treasures. We pray that you will continue in your goodness to incline our hearts to you, to open our minds to your word, to unite our wills with yourself and to satisfy our souls with yourself. Please continue, we pray, to guard and guide. We thank you that you are God above, around, before and underneath. We pray that you would give us the wisdom to walk with you and not away. And that in your goodness and love you would use us in your service, bringing you honour, blessing to others and joy in our hearts. So we thank you for what we've been able to look at and we give you the honour and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, is this a straight to a Q&A? Okay. So, um, would you like to uh, ask a quick question? And if there's nothing, we'll just uh, move on in a depressed sort of way. Israelites are told to take possession of the land after defeating their enemies. Uh, they are uh, first instructed not to intermarry. Does this have specific or broad implications? Yeah, thank you. Um, I do think in the Old and the New Testament, God expected his people to marry somebody who would have the same king and the same values and the same priorities and the same destination and the same direction. I think that's just part of God's wisdom and plan for his people. And you see that picked up in the New Testament. So, yeah, I think um, there was a danger in the Old Testament of intermarrying and taking on other idols, and there was a danger in the New Testament of intermarrying and taking on other idols as well. And we also have another question. Um, if suffering is to show people to repent, why do bad things happen to Christians as well? Um... Christian people experience the normal sufferings of the world and the sufferings of being disciples. 
So there is a sense in which we are normal people in the world, open to everything that the world has, <coughs> but we're also going to face some of the challenges of discipleship, of taking up our cross. So when a person looks at the Christian and says, oh, you've become a Christian, that's because you want life to be dot, 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 and they think easy. We want to say, no, we're subject to all the other things of this world. And we're also um, really facing a battle against our own sin, the world, and the devil. So it's a double battle for us. But would we stop? Would we give up? We wouldn't. The uh, blessings are too great. The joy is too special. And um, if we were suddenly to become believers and be immune to all the sufferings of the world, life would get very deceptive, wouldn't it? People would be becoming Christians in order to avoid trouble, but Christians go through a whole lot of troubles. Now this one um, is just asking if you wouldn't mind repeating the many R's in the Song of the Men. <laughs> Yeah, um, what did I say? First one um, was remember. Remember your sin, remember his mercy. The second one is rebellion, which has been the pattern of the Israelites. The third is rescue, which has been the grace of God. The fourth is rejecting him, is a destructive way to go. The fifth one is repenting, is a good way to go. And the sixth one is rejoicing. Um, because he's going to provide atonement for you. So I just basically tried to work out how to summarise the, the, long, the long song. Uh, what's your favourite passage in Deuteronomy and why? Probably those last verses that were read for us. I think that's, uh, they're climactic. Yeah. I think you could meditate for a long time on the significance of having God above you and God beneath you, and God ahead of you, and God around you. You could think about that for a long time. Now, this one's a general question. Um, what books or authors would you recommend? Uh, do you have a top five books to read? <laughs> um, well, there are some very famous books, aren't there? I mean, I think um, if you haven't read Packer's Knowing God, you should read that because that's just a whole lot of little short chapters on the attributes of God. It's like um, packed treasure, every little chapter. The Cross of Christ by John Stott, I think is one of the great classics on getting a clear grasp of the cross and all its implications. Um, I personally love Spurgeon's Morning and Evening. I think that's a devotional classic, heartwarming and wonderful. Um, if you want to read a big commentary, I recommend Don Carson's commentary on John. I think that's a masterpiece uh, to take you through John. And as a fifth, uh, just for the relevance of the moment, I'd say um, Stephen McAlpine's Being the Bad Guys would be five good books. If you could read them before I see you next time, that'd be great. <laughs> uh, in, back to Deuteronomy. Um, in chapter 13, how can we reconcile a merciful God with the command to personally kill your family member if they serve another God. Yeah, Deuteronomy 13 is one of the most difficult chapters because there is a sort of a progression of the danger of idolatry um, and there is a progression of the radical surgery needed for the idolatry. 
And uh, so I want to say again that if you read Deuteronomy 13, which basically says that even if a relative entices you to go and follow another God, you must not respond. And I think it may say you must put that relative to death. But, but I, I consider that this was probably um, a warning so serious and so solemn that it would only be carried out in extreme circumstances. And there may be one example of that in the Old Testament. So it, it becomes really an incredibly strong deterrent rather than a regular stupid pattern. Now, uh, another general question. Do you have any advice to upkeep the post-camp high and inspiration to read Deuteronomy and other books? <laughs> First of all, I would say, if God has blessed you this weekend, don't be surprised if there's a little backlash. We're in a spiritual battle. We don't live in a playground. We live in a battleground. And so if you have been much blessed this weekend by anything, by friendship or fun or whatever, and you go home, don't be surprised if um, something presents as a discouragement or a temptation or a, a fight, and you just think to yourself, this is a classic devilish tactic. And don't be surprised. It's not a bad thing to drive home mentally praying, Lord, you have blessed us, now please protect us and help us to be ready. But in terms of, um, uh, in, in terms of an emotion, I don't think um, you can expect an emotion like the weekend to be your regular hour by hour experience. Mm. I think we have to learn to walk by faith, not by sight, which means by promise, not by emotion. And so there will be some up days and some down days. And it's in the down days that we have to really hold the promises and not just pretend that everything is going to be up. Um, now, uh, this question asks, did the rebellious Israelites go to heaven? Which is the source passage for that? Uh, and what does that add to the way we think about justification today? Yeah, um, thank you. I think that we have to assume that because Moses himself didn't go into the promised land, but was safe and well at the Mount of Transfiguration, that it's perfectly clear that God was not equating the promised land with heaven. The promised land was just a piece of ground which was going to be temporary preservation for his people. So we don't know among those million or millions who were travelling through the wilderness how many of them were God's people and how many of them were not. Um, could we one day in glory meet thousands, hundreds of thousands who were in the wilderness um, not entering the promised land but now in glory? I think the answer is yes. Is it possible, probable that some of those were rebellious and have basically turned their back on God and ended up in hell? I think the answer is probably yes. Just a couple more questions. Um, why did Israel always fail uh, after such clear warnings? If they did, uh, then what hope have we got? <laughs> <laughs> Our hope is Jesus. Yeah. I mean, just when you look at the, um, you read the book of Judges, you know the book of Judges, um, there they are in the land, and um, they, they're, they're stupid, so they get taken over by another nation, and they cry, oh God, oh God, oh God, we're sorry, we're sorry, and he brings a judge and they rescue them, and all is well. 
and then they're idiots and they get taken over by a nation and they call out, oh God, oh God, oh God, we're so sorry. And he brings a judge and they're back. And then they're idiots and they get taken over by a nation and they call out, oh God, oh God. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? And I think to myself, when I go to shave in the mirror in the bathroom, I'm looking at one of those idiots. You know, I've got the ability to just fall and fail any minute of any hour, but I'm so thankful for Jesus. Yeah. Um, so we'll have to ask this one because two people have asked it. Um, but can we be tested by God and tempted by the devil at the same time? Um, yeah, from two people. I suppose, um, I suppose it is possible that um, God would be at work in testing to see where a person is going to go with their faith. And the devil could be at work as well, seeking to destroy um, with the same experience. Um, but obviously what we are saying is that God's purpose is to bring the person through well. The devil's person purpose is to take the person into trouble. So yes, I think um, you know when we're going through a very bad time, um, we can lean in toward God and say, this is a test, and you're not uh, unaware of the test, and I, I need your help, and ask you to help me, because this is also <coughs> an opportunity where I may doubt, um, blaspheme, disobey, and so I need to be um, given special help not to fall into the devil's trap. Um, so this one is uh, a candid question. If God used outward blessing as a sign to show um, he's with his people in the Old Testament, uh, why would he take that sign away in the New Testament to show he's with us? It's sort of making it harder. <laughs> Yeah, and this is what the prosperity gospel people say, you know, God still wants to give you lots of money and lots of help and lots of great bodies. And um, we just turn to the New Testament, and especially 2 Corinthians, and you'll see there that weakness is often God's way. But have we lost out by not getting lots of crops and herds as they did in the Old Testament? No, we've not. Because we, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, 3, we've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. And our blessings are inward and, and everlasting. And if I had to make a choice between outward and temporary or inward and everlasting, I'd go inward and everlasting, even though I'd like them all. Um, now, this is probably going to be our last question. Um, in chapter 21, uh, with the rules about foreign women, Simon mentioned that, or you mentioned, <laughs> Um, that they were generous uh, in the context of the time. Um, how do you grapple with the fact that by today's standards, it's awful to kill a woman's husband, uh, give her a month to grieve and then assault her? Uh, shouldn't God always be demonstrating a higher standard? Yeah, that's a very, that's a very thoughtful question. Um, in the context of the woman in Deuteronomy having lost a husband, it is the context of war, of battle. So I presume that at the end of the battle, the invasion, there will be some people who have not been part of the army but have been left widowed. Um, and so what Deuteronomy, as I said, is simply saying is 
that you've got a much higher standard as the people of Israel in the way you treat this person than the nations around who might just grab anybody they wanted and do whatever they wanted. But that's not to be the way with God's people. So we're really talking about a context. Remember text and context. And then, of course, a whole lot of this is transformed in the, in the work of Christ with a different message for us today. But I think we've got to establish that what's going on in Deuteronomy 25 is a higher standard of life um, appropriate to the God of Israel. Great. Thank you so much. Is there any last burning question before we close this session?